Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by Jodorowsky's Dune producer Steve Scarlatta and Josh Miller, where they explore some of the greatest movies that were never made, from E.T. 2 to Tim Burton's Superman, Night Skies to Star Trek The Academy Years. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of Star Trek, check out my new sci-fi TV series, Pandora, debuting on The CW and around the world on July 9th, starring Priscilla Quintana and Oliver Dench, and you can find out more by downloading the Unboxing Pandora podcast, available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, it's Darren Docterman, and I am an inglorious Trexpert. Flying solo today, again, but bringing you a lovely time that I spent back in Las Vegas at the official Star Trek convention in Las Vegas. I spent some time with Mike and Denise Okuda, who are, you know, some of my oldest friends who live and work in the Star Trek universe. I met them back when I first was on the pilot for Voyager. I had actually known them a little bit before then, but I actually got to work with them both when I was working on uh, some secondary designs on Voyager. This was back in, what, early or mid-94 or 93? You know what? I can't remember exactly because it's all a blur now, folks. That's <laughs> that's all I can tell you. It's all a blur. But I remember my uh, fun time at Paramount Studios working in the office that was actually in Sunset Boulevard, where the young story editor was working. And I had a lovely view of the Deep Space Nine stages. And it was just a fun, hot summer working, doing supportive design work with Rick Sternback, and it was a lot of fun. But there I get to meet, you know, the whole gang, Mike and Denise and Doug Drexler and Jim Vanover and everybody in the, in the general Star Trek art department. It was split between Deep Space Nine and Voyager, uh, but some of the people worked on both shows. And it was interesting. I had never sort of worked on a TV show before and had done a few movies by that time. But it was very exciting and obviously it was fun to work on a Star Trek project. And I got to do a few cool things that actually made it into the show and a lot of stuff that didn't. But I had a great time and I got to meet Mike and Denise who are so much ensconced in Star Trek in both their personal and professional lives that it was a joy to sort of hang out with them. And Denise and I have this uh, ongoing thing where we will just try to slip in original series Star Trek quotes into regular conversation and try and slip it past the other. And we haven't been able to successfully do that because each one of us catches the other as we do it, which is a lot of fun. I had fun this year at the Vegas Star Trek convention. It's a little, I hate to say, um, laid back because that's not the right word, but it's 
for us uh, classic fans, I'm not going to say older, for us classic fans, it's a little strange to see Star Trek almost going on without us. But that's kind of what it feels like occasionally. Uh, but when we go to our panels that talk about, you know, Star Trek the motion picture or the original series or the films, it's a little bit reassuring, but it's sort of a reminder that Star Trek has moved on since then, and that's all right, but it's sometimes nice to take a step back and remember where we came from. So let's do that right now with my time spent with Mike and Denise Okuda. It's an away team edition of Inglorious Trexperts. This is Darren Docterman. And here we are with two of my favorite Star Trek people. They're Mike and Denise Okuda. Welcome. Hey, Darren. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, Mike and Denise. I'm so glad to have you on here because we've been wanting to have you as guests for all year, basically. As is usually the case, you guys are always busy, especially when we're all in Los Angeles. I never get to see you guys when we're in Los Angeles. I only see you when we're across the country or uh, at various different venues. It's true. <laughs> Funny how that works out. <laughs> but uh, I'm so grateful that you had some time to join me today. I wanted to bring you here to talk about Star Trek. You like Star Trek? I've heard, uh, I've heard, heard of it. it. We've heard of it, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things that I, we were talking earlier, and Star Trek is one of those things that brings people together without them knowing it. And it is a, a shared experience, or at least it used to be. I'm not exactly sure anymore of how you know media is delivered because we used to watch the reruns that all showed at the same time uh you know every every weeknight and it changed a little when next generation came on because in various parts of the country and the world it showed at different times so it wasn't that sort of shared experience but i just want to talk a little bit about how each of you became fans and your earliest, you know, your earliest recollections. Tell me your early, earliest memories of Star Trek. <laughs> uh, and, and what you thought about it the first time you saw it. I think both of us were children of the age of Apollo. We grew up um, in, in an era where the, the nation w uh, thought it was worthwhile to, uh, to literally reach for the stars and have astronauts and, um, who were rock stars and do these amazing things going where no one has gone before and in these amazing machines and uh, and doing it ostensibly for the uh, uh, for the benefit of all mankind and so that's uh, at least for me and, and, and I know for Denise ingrained deeply into 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 who we are and we grew, uh, we grew up with science fiction you know I, I, I love uh, I love watching the old lost in space and everything like that but they were always self-consciously campy, and, and, and while that has a certain charm, it was they were inherently self-deprecating. Right. Then one day I saw a commercial on this uh, on this um, um, on television uh, with this spaceship and on my fuzzy my parents' fuzzy black and white TV. I could only barely tell what it was, but I could tell it was like nothing else I'd seen before. Right. It was fantastic. At the same time, it was, it looked credible. And it was this, this show about these very earnest people uh, doing what my heroes were already doing, that is, going boldly where no one has gone before, mm -hmm. and that they were going uh, 
far far beyond what was imagined today and they were they were heroic and uh, telling fascinating stories and possibly most importantly the nature of the stories the nature of the crew the nature of the show invited you to see them as as your family and 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 by extension they were inviting you into that family so on a weekly basis we could vicariously travel with them I think it's also we were children of Apollo we were also children of the 60s and um, even though we were young we could see what was happening in the world um, and the strife and um, Star Trek not only kindled our interest because we had uh, we loved science fiction we loved um, Michael mentioned you know Lost in Space but it also took this television series to another level here was a place where people of all different races uh, worked together. Um, it didn't matter what the color of your skin was, mm-hmm. um, that we were one people, that it was one universe. Right. And for me personally, growing up with parents who were very much involved in the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. and um, I was taught those uh things in my household that we were all one people and Star Trek didn't need to preach that it was that and so even at a tender age I was drawn to that philosophy Um, and the spice was the science fiction uh, which held my interest and it's also um, interesting how the interest in Star Trek evolved as the years and the decades melted Mm -hmm. away and then, of course, Michael and I were fortunate enough to work on Star Trek. Right. And uh, that's a whole different dimension. But um, Star Trek has really been with both of us for most of our lives. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I'm a little younger than, than you both, but not much. And my connection with it was a little bit connected to, you know, being a child of the Apollo program and enjoying NASA but I was a little too young to understand what was happening there I I realized it later of course but I think you know Star Trek came to me first and excited that desire for you know the expansing the expanding of the human (laughs) yeah the expanding of the human condition and and reaching out and voyaging and exploring and discovering new things I think a lot of it has to do with the combination of uh, escapism and hope. Because Star Trek had both, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, it's, it's uh, for, the, for the little kids, it's uh, a chance to, you know, watch, you know, people with phasers and monsters occasionally and, and the spaceship. And, but I like what you mentioned before uh, about the feeling of, you know, integrating humanity of all the races and all different backgrounds and not putting a pin in it. Just showing it like it was normal. Right. Because it should be. Right. And it, it didn't it didn't call attention to any anything. It didn't highlight this. It just presented it. Right. And I think that's that's one of the things that uh, I think Whoopi Goldberg talked about when she first saw the show. And uh, she saw, you know, Michelle up there as Uhura and they weren't making a big deal about it. It was like, yeah, of she's, course there. she's there. Of course, of course she's there. Why wouldn't she be? Exactly. 
And I think that's that's part of the the thing that I sort of latched on to. And it, you know, obviously informed my views on so many things. Mm-hmm. As the years grew by and Star Trek went dormant a little bit for a few years between between the late 60s and the 80s, basically. What happened? What happened with both of you? Well, a number of, number of things happened. One of the most important things, uh, again, for, for both of us growing up in different parts of the country, uh, this was actually during the run of the original Star Trek, a remarkable book was, um, was, was published, uh, written by Stephen E. Whitfield, uh, under the, um, whose real name is, uh, was Stephen Poe, called The Making of Star Trek. Mm. It was the first book of its kind that actually went behind the, the scenes, and it, and it launched the, the, uh, the genre of making of books. First of all, this, uh, this book was fascinating because it, it showed you how, uh, how this TV show was made. And it had a lot of, uh, a lot of background about the show itself. So as a, uh, it had pictures of the phasers and, right. uh, and all that fun stuff. Um, but most importantly, it told the, sto- uh, told the stories of people like Gene Roddenberry, Bob Justman, Matt Jeffries, Dorothy Fontana, all these, all these people. And it showed us that there was this alternate universe, universe, if you will. Yeah. On one hand, you have the, uh, the, the imagined shared reality of the, uh, of the world of Star Trek as we see on television. Yeah. But there was this, this, this unsuspected group of heroes uh, in, in their own way equally heroic who against all odds uh, somehow willed this amazing science fiction television show into existence and somehow despite ridiculously tight budgets and absurdly tight schedules and so many other practical things including uh, essentially no technology they were able to through the sheer genius of these people their creativity and sheer determination they were able to make this television show and you go wow and as you and then eventually because I read the book way too many times you begin to realize Hey, you know, that's something that a person might aspire to. That's something that an ordinary person might be able to uh, to contribute to, and that wasn't really my career goal. But suddenly, it, it was a, it was an option. It was a revelation. Right. Right. It was like this is something that 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 you can do. Right. Uh, you know, there's. I'm not going to be an astronaut. Right. I came to the sad realization. But. A kid, uh, a kid like me could conceivably work on a television show. Right. Well, you also, I mean, at least for me, I mean, I read the book as well and was fascinated and have the same viewpoint that, that Michael did, but in a million years, I never thought I would be working on Star Trek. I mean, that was just something that, first of all, Star Trek was gone, right? right. It was yeah. canceled. It was gone after three years. How can you work gone. on Star Trek? It's, it's canceled. It's gone. Yeah. And uh, so I just continued on with my life, but the philosophy of Star Trek and that, that wonder and that family feeling never left. I mean, we've got reruns and, um, and so forth. So uh, that always stayed with me, and I just continued on with my life. I had a profession. I went on, you know, graduated from college, mm-hmm. went to work as a nurse, you know. Star Trek didn't come back until Star Trek The Motion Picture. Right. Um, which a friend of mine 
who worked had friends in production called me and said they were doing a casting call right. and they needed people to populate the rec deck and would I be interested and so I went down I was chosen and that was an, a remarkable day that I spent one day as a Vulcan on the Enterprise for Star Trek the Motion Picture that must have been interesting what was what was that like walking onto the set for someone who had never been I, no I had no I had no touch at all um, and so if I was um, completely, as you can imagine, blown away. Mm-hmm. I mean, I um, and as a fan, my eyes were wide open. I was when I went in to get fitted for costume. Right. I wasn't just getting fitted for a costume. I was looking at everything. I right. was looking. The insignias had different colors in the back of them, and I'm trying to think. Okay, that must be departments. And what department, and I was put, I believe it had a green insignia, which I later found out I believe was medical, yeah. which was kind of interesting because I was, actually that that time I was still in school, but I was going to be a nurse. Right. And um, uh, I was, they put ears on me the whole nine yards. That's awesome. Uh, which was awesome. Um, but I was looking at everything as a fan. Sure. Um, I was just absorbing it. And then I got chatting with one of the... Um, he must have been a, I don't know if it was a grip or a painter, somebody working. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, when you're done here, I'll take you around the sets. So when they were done, yeah. I got to walk down the corridors of the Enterprise. and Which was, was on a different soundstage. Yeah, on a different soundstage, <laughs> yeah. And um, that was amazing. Mm-hmm. But I just thought, you know, that's just one experience. It's great. It's over. Moved on with that's my life. Yeah. yeah. That was your little brush with yeah, with the production and, and with yeah Star Trek. But yeah. but but prior prior to Star Trek the motion picture, uh, and, and I'm sure you experienced this too, um, when 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 the original Star Trek was was canceled, it was like that's it. You got your reruns, but that's it. Star right. Trek Star Trek is history. And then around '72, the, these rumors and news reports started leaking out. Uh, Roddenberry's trying to do a new uh, 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 movie. Roddenberry's trying to uh, do right. do uh, Star Trek TV movies. Right. Uh, Paramount wants to do a movie, and and these news reports would come out. These tantalizing things that maybe it could come back. Right. And what an amazing thing! So you know, you you read every you glom onto every little tiny snippet of of, of news. And you get your hopes up, and then your hopes get dashed. And this went on for years, and it it was uh, it certainly taught uh, taught me patience. Well, there was a little bit of resurgence in '73 when the animated show came out, and then there was the animated show. But uh, and as much as I enjoyed the animated show, to me that was like okay, that this means that there will never be right. Uh, uh, it was like you know, it was like second place prize. Yes. Yeah. And it was it was great. I enjoyed it. I watched it every week, but it meant that we w- we were never going to get more right. uh, more live action. Well, just shows what you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I remember those years very well because you know that's obviously when I first developed my fandom intensely. I you know I watched the animated show every every week and uh, watched the syndicated live-action show, without fail, recorded episodes constantly, listened to them all the time, memorized them. As, as you know, Denise, we, we banter back and forth. Yes. <laughs> quotes constantly. Yes. And 
it's it's funny how something that is so I mean it's a limited thing, but it takes up so much of your you know active brain that it's it's really appalling actually how much of my brain is taken up by Star Trek, but it's also surprising how much I've been able to use <laughs> in the in the you know later years, but it's it was that sort of fervor that I'm sure kept you uh, sated through the the dry years before the movie started, and I think that was one of the most creative times for fandom ever, because because we had no Star Trek, right. we began to fashion our own in well, many not, ways. Not only that, we didn't have the internet. Well, th this is true. And so everything was, um, you know, Star Trek. My first Star Trek convention was, I believe, nineteen seventy-two ish. Mm -hmm. Was called FilmCon One. Mm -hmm. That I uh, was at the Ambassador Hotel with um, B. Joe Trimble, B. Joe and John Trimble right. organized, and it wasn't a Star Trek convention; it was right. a film convention. And um, then they started Equicons in like '73, mm -hmm. um, and those were Star Trek conventions. So there was stuff going on, and things kept building and building right. and building, and um, exploding. Right. So there was a dry time, but people. More people found Star Trek when it was syndicated, right? Than when it was on the first, you know, when it was on air, right? Absolutely, especially during the third season, yes, because it was on a horrible night. It was on Friday nights yeah. at ten, yeah, and it was not the best season, right? And when so, their target audience was out, out, playing. going out, yeah, yeah. exactly. So <laughs> uh, there was a dry spell, but it was a very fertile, as you said, it was a very fertile time, and you know, we saw the the. The creation of all these fanzines mm -hmm. and all these sort of uh, creative outlets of people drawing pictures, painting pictures, making the first fan films were done then, and it was it was all to sort of fill up the vacuum that was left after real quote real Trek was gone. Right. And it's funny that the I think. The studio at the time was trying like crazy to try and find a way to bring it back. And they went through so many different sort of iterations mm -hmm. as to what they were going to do. It was going to be, was it going to be a new TV series? Was it going to be a TV movie? Was it going to be a feature film? They, you know, as you know, they went through so many things that they later charged to the budget of Star Trek The Motion Picture. <laughs> yes. um, but at least five or six years of development cost on all of this stuff. Where, where did you get your information in those years? Because I know that I only learned about stuff when uh, sort of Starlog started, which was, what, late 76. Mm -hmm. I, had no, I had no other sort of uh, ways to finding out. Maybe there was, uh, there was a couple, you know, small release magazines that were out there. There was the fan club uh, for Star Trek magazine that I learned about Doug Drexler and the Federation Trading Post mm -hmm. in. And uh, that was about it as far as I remember. Um, well, I had uh, a couple of things. Somehow I got onto the mailing list of one of the uh, uh, um, one of the big Star Trek conventions mm -hmm. um, 
I was living in Hawaii at the time, and and, mm. and the notion of traveling to New York was just just prohibitive. Sure. But I, I could I could at least subs, uh, subscribe to the stuff. Right. So that's how I found out about uh, Doug Dreckler's Federation Trading Post. But also uh, there was a I remember reading an article in the local newspaper. It was uh, through the Associated Press, and it was some. Uh, uh, entertainment writer Jerry Buck was writing about uh, how Star Trek, even though it was uh, uh, it was a long god television show, that it was it was uh, uh, it had this peculiar second life, and he wrote about the conventions, which prior to that I had no idea, and he wrote about fanzines, and he wrote about, uh, and most significantly he he mentioned that uh, that Paramount and NBC were considering the possibility of a Star Trek Returns TV movie. Right. So uh, somehow I had the op- the address of uh, Paramount Pictures. So I, I wrote to Runberg's office and said, hey, tell me more about this. Right. And uh, Dorothy Fontana was working for um, for Roddenberry at the time. Hmm. And she, I guess she got a lot of those kinds of requests because she had a form letter that she, she sent me. Right. And it was, uh, it was, a, it was a list of uh, Star Trek conventions, a list of fanzines, and this amazing, like, Oh my God! There's 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 people who are uh, who are even crazier than I am. Mm. So that's how I found out about uh, B. Joe's uh, B. Joe Trimble's amazing Star Trek Concordance. Right. That's how I found out about uh, 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 Star San Diego. The, uh, the the people who are so actively campaigning to uh, bring the show back. Right. And uh, to me, that and and uh, Ruth Berman's uh, T negative fan scene. Mm. Uh, Jacqueline Lichtenberg. Sure. All, uh, all these am- amazing fan activists, right? And that was that was my that was my lifeline to the world of Star Trek. That's very interesting. That must have been very early. If Dorothy was still working for Gene, probably. But it, w- it was well after the st- after the original series had been canceled. Right. That's fascinating. What about you, Denise? Uh- I wasn't living in Hawaii. I was living in right. Los Angeles. But basically, the same type of things. I didn't write Paramount, but uh, there was a Star Trek Well Committee. Mm-hmm. I went to college at San Diego State, mm-hmm. where there's that whole active, you know, sure. group. Um, and still is. And still is, right. yeah. Um, so I was plugged in, um, but I was also very busy. I mean, I remember. You know, I was going to college and working, and um, I never thought I was going to be involved in anything. So sure. I passionately, you know, love Trek, but um, there wasn't much more that I could be doing. Sure. And so I kind of I kept up, you know, T negative, the, the, that, that fanzine and um, well committee, and um, so I knew of stuff. Right. Um, and. Certainly went to Star Trek: The Motion Picture the day it opened. Sure, um, but there wasn't, you know, there was stuff going on. But we did again. We didn't have the internet. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the thing that I find so fascinating that without all this, you know, magical technology that is, you know, a double-edged sword for everything. Um, we learn about everything, but we also learn the dark side of a lot of things. Um, but before that, with our, you know, with our strange ways of communicating, very, you know, primitive ways, um, 
it found a way. It found a way to, you know, for people to get together and and learn about stuff and enjoy, you know, their fandom together. Well, people were passionate. Absolutely. I mean, we and and people worked. I mean, it, right. You had to make it happen. Right. So. Well, so during the time that the movie started, um, Star Trek came into the general, the, the general sphere of, uh, of uh, knowledge and regular people, you know, outworlders learned about, about Star Trek and they, you know, they came into the fold um, gradually. Um, but this is, you know, around that time, uh, Mike, you had your first sort of connection with actually working on it. How did that happen? Oh, let's see. I my actual first uh, uh, meeting Roddenberry was uh, he gave a talk uh, in uh, in Honolulu, mm. and uh, I, I wrote to Susan Sackett at uh, at, um, at Paramount and she arranged for uh, for us to meet. Right. Um, then a couple years later. There was a tiny science fiction convention in Kona, Hawaii, hmm. put on by a, uh, a woman named Maria Moman. And it was a t- tiny convention. There were two guests, Gene Roddenberry and me. Oh, my goodness. And she invited me because uh, I, was, I was working with uh, my friends, uh, uh, Kurt Nelson and Brian Fuhrer. We used to have a small company to do uh, uh Ultra low budget mechanical effects for TV commercials. Nice. And anyway, uh, um, Gene had no idea who I was, but uh, <laughs> uh, there was a moment where the uh, where the, the film projector was eating the, uh, the his copy of the cage, right. and different people were trying to thread it, and it was shredding the film. And finally, I went to Gene. Says, Gene, I know how to work this thing. Because it was it was not the standard Bell and Howell projector; it was an right. AQ projector. And uh, so finally, Gene stands up and says, oh, "Michael here works in the industry, and he knows <laughs> he has no idea who I am." <laughs> that that's how I first met Gene. Uh, then, when Star Trek: The Motion Picture came out, my my story is that I saw the screens on the Enterprise bridge, the uh, the mm-hmm. round screens, and I said, and the and the, the the displays that act graphics could actually uh, fit on the screens, they weren't round. Yes, and it looked kind of goofy. So I uh, so the the first thing you jump to is well the dumb round screens are dumb. The second thing you go well if they if the designers of the Enterprise had round screens, obviously it was for a purpose. What would that purpose be? Right. So I sketched. I spent a few lunch hours sketching it up, what I thought it might look like, and then uh, and after after a while I went hey, this this is kind of this is kind of interesting. So I. Made copies, I uh, threw them in an envelope, and I, I sent it to basically anyone I could think of. And uh, uh, I sent it to Gene Roddenberry, I sent it to Harv Bennett, uh, and one of the people I sent it to was uh, uh, was Ralph Winter, who's uh, who I, I had seen his name in a um, you know, making of book or something. Right. He was an, uh, he was an associate producer on on Star Trek Two, and when uh, when. One day, just out of the blue, I, I got a, a phone call on on, uh, on my on my uh, I got a call on my uh, uh, phone recorder. Yeah, it was uh, Ralph Winter saying, "Hey, uh, thanks for sending your your stuff in. We're gonna uh, we're already staffed up in Star Trek Three. I didn't even know they're making Star Trek Three. Right. 
I mean, I knew there were, but I didn't know it would be production. <laughs> we're already staffed up, but uh, if we ever make a Star Trek 4, I'll give you a call. And I thought, well, that's really the nicest brush off you'll ever get. Right. And two years later, to my considerable shock, he called me up and said, hey, we're making Star Trek 4. Uh, would you like to work on it? And that's the very definition of a rhetorical question. Absolutely. And that's also, Michael knew no one. Right. He's in Hawaii. Right. He knows no one. So they were impressed with his work enough to give him a call to this kid in, sure. in, in Hawaii and fly him over to work on the, the motion picture. And the rest is history. That's pretty cool. That was for a kid who grew up loving Star Trek... For a kid who, uh, 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 you know, really knew nothing about the film industry except having read the making of Star Trek, right. yeah, that was really about as cool as you, you can get. And then a few months later, to be to be sitting to be standing on uh, on stage nine at Paramount Pictures while they were shooting the top secret ending for Star Trek IV right. uh, on the Enterprise bridge, and all the instrumentation is is mine, and you and you have you have Kirk and Spock back on the bridge where they belong. Right. Uh, and heading out into the unknown. Yeah, that, that was pretty cool. What about you, Denise? What was? Um, what brought you into? Well, I just went on with my life. I mean, I was right. working in a hospital as a nurse, and I had a friend that was working production. I had a friend that worked with um, with Gene Roddenberry, mm. and um, Star Trek. I mean, I had gone to see the films, and as as just a fan. Yeah. wasn't in no connection. And um, uh, this friend said, would you like to come up to speak to uh, the art department folks that are going to be doing this new television series, Star Trek The Motion Picture? Excuse me, Star Trek The Next Generation. Right. So I came up and I had a meeting about the sick bay of the future. Right. Because I was a nurse and I was a Star Trek fan and so forth. So I came up and I had a meeting with uh, Herman Zimmerman, production designer, with... um, Illustrator Rick Sternbeck, illustrator Andy Probert, right. and we had a meeting, and we t- and I talked about what I would like to see, both as a medical professional and as also as a Star Trek fan. And then Herman took me up to the art department to to meet some other people. And on one of the bulletin boards at one of the desks was a little puppet of Max Headroom, and I happen to love the nineteen eighties <laughs> Max Headroom sure. uh, television series. It was way ahead of its time. It was brilliant. And um, I said, whose desk is this? And it was Mike's. And um, anyway, long involved story short, we we got to chatting and we got to seeing each other and we got married. And um, Mike was also working, I think, on Star Trek V. At the time, I would come up on the weekends and he would teach me and I would start doing graphics and all this stuff. And... um, then flash forward, you know... Uh, and your fate was sealed. And my fate was sealed. And um, I worked... I mean, Michael worked on Star Trek for many, many years, and so did I. And um, we were very blessed to have... I mean, there were about five of us that worked on two TV shows at the same time. Oh. And then we did a feature every other year. Right. So we were so immersed in Star Trek production more than anything. We were still fans, but right. there's... As you know, there's a big difference in being a fan, and then there's a, then you work as a professional because right. you have two different hats on, and they don't always congeal to be the same hat. Right. Um, but you need to do your job. You need to do it well, 
and that's the most important thing. And one doesn't often help the other. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. That's not true. A lot of uh, they they can inform the other. They inform the other, but you you have to be the professional first. Right. Yeah. A, a friend of mine when I when I went to my brief stint at film school before I dropped out um, <laughs> told me. Um, it's okay to be a geek, just don't let them know right away. Absolutely. <laughs> no, I, I unfortunately wore my geekdom on a, on a sleeve, and and that was, that was a bit of a double-edged sword. Yeah. Uh, on one hand, it, uh, it it gave me opportunities, and on the other hand, it's like, uh, like I'm, I'm not sure about that guy. Right. They didn't... A lot of producers did not understand that we were on their side. Right. Um, we want it to be the best it can be. We would like it to conform to what we believe Star Trek is all about. Mm-hmm. However, we also understand you have a deadline, you have a budget, and this is the way it is. Right. And I think it was sometimes difficult for them to wrap their brain around that. Sure. I, I remember um, during the first episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, there was a there was a production uh, um, there was a, a production uh, schedule change right. that would, I have no idea why it happened but it was a scene in, uh, in Dr. Crusher's office that had to shoot uh, about a week earlier than it was planned mm-hmm. so the graphics for that set weren't ready right. uh, so David Livingston who was, uh, went on to be, become probably the most prolific director in, 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 that, in that era mm-hmm. uh, but he's also an enormously practical uh, uh, producer. Right. He was understandably uh, a little wary of this of this kid who was a, 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 who was a rabid Star Trek fan. Right. And he said, uh, "Can we shoot this on Tuesday?" And I said, "I with uh, right now, I don't, I don't think so." And David, kind of with certain exasperation, says, "Look, I don't." Uh, I know you want to make this scientifically accurate, but we have to. Uh, uh, but a lot rides on uh, if we can meet the schedule. And I said, David's got nothing to do with scientific accuracy. It's uh, there were there were certain uh, logistical constraints that limited when I could get this done. Uh, an outside vendor, right? And he said, Well, what can we do? I said, Well, David, if you'll give me a little bit more money, I can put a rush on this. And that moves this up by two days, which moves that up by two days, which means I can meet I can meet your deadline. So he said, "Okay." Right. And so uh, I met his deadline. We uh, they, they changed the schedule, and, uh, and everybody was happy, even right. David. Right. Was it scientifically accurate? It was as scientifically accurate as I could make it with the information I had at that time. <laughs> Good answer. You two both spent many many years working on many iterations. Of the show, and were there any were there any point where working on it took away from your enjoyment of it? There were many times when uh, uh, when the stress of production, uh, the sheer exhaustion of, 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 of too many 12, 14, uh, 16 hour days, mm-hmm. uh, seven day long work weeks, it absolutely gets to you. And I know this sounds corny as hell, but there are so many times when we would say to each other, uh, I've got to have faith, we've got to have faith, that 
there is some, there's going to be some 11-year-old kid to whom this is going to mean as much as the original Star Trek meant to us. Mm-hmm. And that thought really got us through a lot. That kept us going. We would, we would think about everyone out there um, that would be watching the show. Sure. And we wanted it to be good. And, of as um, good as we could as make we it. could make right. it we you know we're in the art department right we are so far down on the food chain and back in those days nobody knew what graphics did they right. pretty much left us alone and um, you know but we wanted to make sure that our little corner of the universe was as good as we could make it of course and um, but yeah, we were burnt out. I mean, especially when you get toward the end when we were on Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, we were fried. Sure. I mean, so many years. And again, we were working two shows. So right. we almost had no hiatus because we'd overlap pre and post. Right. And so we were tired. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But um, we never lost fact that, uh, that we were incredibly fortunate and blessed not only to be working on Star Trek, but to have a job. Sure. I mean, we had a we had a job. There was a paycheck every week. Right. You deal with the realities of the world, and um, so we never took that for granted. And we knew that we were working. So that when we left Star Trek, I never forget. We I, we went to work on a pilot, and it wasn't fun. Right. I kept saying to Michael, "I don't want to do this. If this is the way the real world is." Right where people stab you in the back and try to sabotage your work and sabotage sabotage (laughs) those of you out here that out there that know Bill Shanner and his sabotage you get this um you know it was different and uh so we were very fortunate that we just kind of went into jobs that were still Star Trek we were still we've been working on Star Trek a long time yeah and, um, and even, even today, an occasional Star Trek project comes in. Yeah, we, we still occasionally will work um, on Star Trek projects. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, time has marched on, and we didn't want to go to Toronto. And um, we're, you know, that's just... So we, we've kind of taken a, a step back. Right. Um, which is okay. Um, uh, so, you know, Star Trek is going on, and... And uh, many more people, I'm sure, will be watching it, and God bless them. I'm trying to figure out a way to phrase this question. After all of of the experiences that you've had, both in civilian life and uh, in the in the service of the Federation, um, where do you think that that humankind will make it to Star Trek? We'll make it to that world that we saw when we were younger. When um, when the television movie um, Genesis Two came out, uh, Roddenberry was actively trying to do something to recapture the magic of Star Trek, mm-hmm. and he would say, uh, he said in response to a question that this shows that humanity takes two steps forward, one step back, three steps forward, two steps back. Mm-hmm. And while it may look from time to time that, uh, that we're, we're going backwards, uh, as long as we work hard, we, we can continue to uh, 
uh, to move gradually in, in the right direction. We won't get to Star Trek immediately. Sure. But uh, he still had faith that we would, and I still have faith that we will. You have faith of the heart. Oh, oh God. <laughs> can, can, I, can I say, can I say, I know this is a minority opinion, and I think you disagree with me on this. I love the main title sequence of Star Trek Enterprise. I love the use of that song. Uh, I know uh, Rick Berman and Brandon Brugger come under a lot of criticism for this, but they were tasked with reinventing Star Trek, with trying to discover its core, but making it completely different. And that was, and I admire a brave, well-informed, out-of-the-box creative decision, even if it didn't work. I, I completely agree with your assessment. My only difference is that no one asked them to make it completely different. I want... <laughs> I, 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 I'm not sure I, I, I agree. Uh, whenever... Uh, we, have a, uh, uh, we, we, we have a saying whenever you're, you're doing a sequel. Sure. Make it completely... Uh, 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 make it exactly the same, but completely different. Right. And that's the inherent uh, thing, because if you make it exactly the same, uh, it's, it's instantly boring. So the job is always to try to find some new interpretation, something, some, some new twist on it, some some reinvention. And if, if all you do is uh, is put the captain's ready room on the on the opposite side <laughs> of the bridge, uh, you may not be doing it quite so cleverly as as you should. And I thought Faith of the Heart was a fascinating new way to look at. How we got from uh, from there to here, right? And 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 it, it to me it, it touched the heart of Star Trek in a, in a in a way that I don't think any of the other spinoff shows main titles did. I I would agree. I I the visuals in the main titles I absolutely love. Um, I I saw someone put it with a different soundtrack on it, mm-hmm. and I just thought it was perfect. Yeah. It's I think it was just the style of the song yeah. that I think it it sort of raked over some people and I'm yeah. one of them but no, I, 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 I'm not saying it's a, it's a great song <laughs> and I'm not trying to I'm not trying to get a you know a, a blast quote from you it's okay <laughs> the, there was uh, uh, the, I saw a test version of the title with uh, uh, I think it was The Calling yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. The, uh, the, 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 the musically I thought that, that version worked uh, considerably better in terms of the uh, uh, the the content of the lyrics, I didn't think it worked, worked as well. Mm-hmm. You know, might have worked better if they went with that one. If you were in charge, if you were put in charge of the Star Trek franchise mm-hmm. right now, mm-hmm. oh my, what do you think you would do first? Uh, when you say, uh, am I assuming that Discovery and Picard and Lower Decks and all those things? The, 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 they, they do not exist. This is a clean slate. What do you do? I asked the question: How do you, uh, how do you reinvent the material to rediscover what was what was wonderful about it? Mm-hmm. And if you look at a lot of the spin-off shows, there are seeds of brilliance in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Voyager, for example, I thought it a brilliant concept. That is, uh, the 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 Federation, the space around us, the Klingons, the Romulans, and all those things have gotten too familiar. Right. We could not discover new stuff, so send them way the hell out there. 
Right. Now, I don't think our interpretation of that worked particularly well. That is, you know, we, we ran to the Borg awfully sure. conveniently. Sure. And the, and the aliens look awfully a lot like previous aliens we've seen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I, I would certainly ask those questions. Um, I love the notion of uh, uh, how do you how do you discover how do you rediscover the Federation's values after the fall of the Federation? Right. I would have loved to have seen something like that. I think one of the failings of people who love Star Trek, who uh, who are placed in a, in a position to uh, uh, to develop the new Star Trek, mm-hmm. is you can't. I, I think it's a mistake to go at it with okay, but this uh, th- uh, this time the Romulans are this, and this time the uh, uh, th- this and this time we have this time we have a Borg science officer, in. Right, right? And all those are cool, but but what, it's not Mad Libs. It's not, and, yeah. and you need something that says um, uh, that the, the concept of the elevator pitch. You, you need something like uh, there is a time tunnel that you can that you can uh, travel to point, different points in history, right. or a. a the space family is lost in space. Right. Or uh, passengers are trapped on a planet in which everyone is a giant. Right. If you can, if you can, uh, if you can have such a clean, strong concept that you can describe it in, the, in, the, in those brief terms, whatever that might be, right. uh, I think that's, that's uh, a far stronger basis than, uh, than okay, Kirk's cousin-in-law, uh, right. Teams up with the uh, with, with with Ben Finney's nephew-in-law. Right. <laughs> Any thoughts, Denise? Oh, I have lots of thoughts, <laughs> but I will temper them. Um, I think, and now we're going to talk fantasy because this is not reality. Of course, of course. Uh, reality is that the entertainment industry is a is a business, and people, um, you know, that decide that they want to take uh, this amazing property called Star Trek and um, uh, do their own movie. They mm-hmm. have their own agenda. Sure. And so a lot of times things won't be as the original and the original. So what I would do, what I would have done if I had the power, mm-hmm. is I would have taken um, the core, like they do at Disney. They have like an archivist mm-hmm. or, or someone that knows the bones of this franchise. And they would take that person or this committee or whatever, and they would say, okay, let's take these core philosophies or that have worked and that people seem to love, right. and let's build from that. Right. So we don't have conflicts, and we don't have other agendas. And um, let's, let's, let's take this rich universe, and let's go down this particular, like Michael was mentioning, the you know, the Federation has fallen in its rebirth, or the different cultures that we've known in Star Trek. And right. um, we'll concentrate on those. I mean, much like, you know, Marvel did with with its universe. Sure. That's what I would have done. Mm. Totally not realistic. Not going to work. Yeah. but Not going to work. But people okay. are hungry for Star Trek. Or, or something that fulfills that role. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I have thought this for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and my opinion has not changed. Yeah. Um, but it's tempered with the reality of reality. Right. And it's never going to be that way. 
and because it's a business, yeah, and um, uh, very grateful that Star Trek is still around. Yeah, uh, that's a good thing because I think that it, it that it at its purest and best, it can mold lives to the better. Yeah. Mike and Denise Okuda. Thank you for helping mold our lives to the better. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Darren. Thanks for joining us on our away team mission for Inglorious Trexperts. Go boldly. Yes. Thanks again to Mike and Denise Okuda for taking the time out from their very busy con schedule to talk with me and be on the Trexperts. Again, I'd like to have them back if they have any time in our Los Angeles studio because it always sounds better. Uh, thanks to Bill Ritter and our uh, lovely uh, team at Electric Surge Network, because that's really where we can get all the gang together and have our trek party. So until the next time, I want to thank you for joining us. For Inglorious Trexperts, and if you're a fan of this podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts, like the 4.30 movie, Every Friday, in which a group of writers and producers and myself curate fantasy theme weeks of classic movies. And also this summer on The CW, don't forget to keep checking out the second season of Dean Devlin's fantasy series, The Outpost. And of course, keep watching the new sci-fi action-adventure series from creator, executive producer, and inglorious Trexpert Mark A. Altman, Pandora. Also, look for Best Movies Never Made every Monday where you listen to podcasts as well as the new Star Wars podcast, The Rebel and the Rogue, every Thursday night. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us five stars, and only five stars, on Apple Podcasts. And you can follow us at Inglorious Trek on Twitter or at Inglorious Trexperts on Instagram. And also look for us at www.ingloriousTrexperts.com. And you can find some lovely swag to make your Trexpert journey all the more complete. So I want to, again, give a very special thanks to Bill Ritter and everyone here at Electric Surge Network. Until next Saturday, keep on trekking, ingloriously, of course. Engage already. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.